Hello, it's Aisha. We're away this week recording our exciting live event in London, which will be on the podcast next week. But in the meantime, we're listening back to a live episode we recorded in April. Sophia Umoja Noble is an associate professor at UCLA and the author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. She joined Kirsty Styles for a revealing look at how all kinds of negative biases are embedded in the algorithms that increasingly shape our world. So for now, it's over to Kirsty, and I'll be back with a brand new episode next week. Welcome, welcome, welcome. The event will start with a quick uh, keynote from Sophia, uh, then a conversation between the two of us, and then we will open up to some uh, awesome questions from yourselves. So without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming Sophia Umoja Noble, uh, author of Algorithm- Algorithms of Oppression. Thank you. Thank you. So excited to be here. Thank you. Uh, I encouraged everyone to get a beverage before we started because uh, the next 15 minutes are going to be a little bit of a downer, but I feel like we're in a room full of incredibly smart people, so maybe we can kind of think our way uh, past and through some of these provocations that I'm going to put before us. And most of these really generated from a new book that I wrote called Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism, which is the outgrowth of a dissertation that I wrote at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I'm really excited because tonight um, here with us too is one of my um, great friends and colleagues, Professor Myra Washington, also from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and now at the University of New Mexico. And, you know, while we were at Illinois, we were studying critically uh, the ways in which communications and technologies were changing the world. Um, At the time that I was in graduate school and started working on this book in uh, kind of, I don't know, the late 2009, 2010 or so, people were really still deeply wedded to this idea that search engines in particular were going to be a new liberatory force And I remember I had just left the advertising industry uh, where I'd worked for 15 years before going back to graduate school. And as I was leaving the ad industry, we were starting to spend a tremendous amount of money in online media buying, uh, advertising buying. And of course, our whole game was to try to get our clients' products and services to the first page of large commercial search engines. Uh, So it was shocking to me to go back to graduate school and find that most of the people who were in information schools were thinking, communications departments, were thinking about Google as this kind of new uh, public library online or this new giant knowledge repository that was going to uh, make knowledge free and accessible and uh, and I was it was the, it was here that I kind of started thinking about a more systematic study of search engines because I was uh, curious about how it was that everywhere else outside of academia we understood that search engines were advertising platforms and that the whole mechanism for driving content had to do with advertising and optimizing content. And yet there was this completely different conversation happening in the university. Um, And you have to remember this was also at the height of the Google Book Digitization Project. So the University of Illinois, where I was going to school, and many other large research uh, universities, Harvard, Michigan, everyone was handing over thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of volumes to Google to digitize. Right, again, in this kind of effort to uh, liberate knowledge. 
So this is where kind of the genesis story is for this book, is kind of at this uh, contradiction that I'm experiencing. And um, one of the things that I wanted to do was think about this kind of what are the policies and practices that are happening in the worlds of information and communication, libraries and education in particular, and the way people there were talking about what search engines could do? Of course, you have this rise of a new mantra called Just Google It that everyone is using, parents, teachers. And I was thinking about vulnerable communities in particular, knowing that they did not have a lot of capital to optimize keywords and to make content visible and available. But they also were not in the numerical majority, which is another way that people think about how content comes to live in search engines in a very, in a very visible way. And so I started writing um, this book. Now, the, my favorite part of thinking about this book coming into existence is when I was going under contract with uh, New York University Press, and I said, I want to name this book Algorithms of Oppression. And I have this amazing editor there, Eileen Kalish, who is the uh, gender and women's studies editor. And she was like, Safia girl, <laughs> nobody knows what an algorithm is. <laughs> and, you know, this was back in like 2013. And I said, they're going to know by the time <laughs> this book comes out because university books take a long time to get out. Um, <laughs> and so I was right. Um, and, uh, you know, by the time the book uh, came out in the kind of early um, summer last year, it was true that so many journalists, in particular here in the UK, um, at The Guardian especially, were breaking stories about uh, the darker side of automation, the, the darker side of algorithms. And um, so this book, I, it, it came to fruition at a perfect time. And, you know, in some ways, uh, these are some of the headlines, you know, you can see here, you know, that 2017 was the year we fell out of love with algorithms. And I'd love to think that I played some small part um, in that. But this idea that um, algorithms now are part of our everyday experience and in, and in so many ways affecting the choices and the experiences that we have, making some opportunities available and also foreclosing other kinds of opportunities. And these are the kinds of things that I think are really interesting um, for us to talk about tonight. All right, so uh, let me kind of jump right into the first keyword search that really kicked off this the more systematic study. This is a, a search that I did on the keywords black girls. And this was back in, you can see here, this is from 2011. I started looking at keywords on various girls of color identities in the United States, black girls, Asian girls, Latina girls, using the way in which we would characterize ourselves also. Um, I looked at African-American girls, of course, but, you know, African-American is a very specific ethni black ethnicity. Um, and so, of course, in the U.S., we have many kinds of uh, uh, African diaspora ethnicities. And one of the uh, key kind of unifying identities for black Americans is this idea of blackness um, around the world um, in the diaspora. And so when you talk to African-Americans, for example, we'll often want our colleagues at work to refer to us as African-American or in formal spaces like the university. But when we're together, we're like all black girl magic and we're all <laughs> black girl everything and black women everything. And this is really important. So one of the things that I was thinking about is what does it mean when we're looking for ourselves in these spaces and we're not in kind of a, a majority uh, group in, in the population? 
And you can see here that in 2011, when you did a keyword search on the keyword black girls, um, sugaryblackpussy.com is the first hit you get. Now, this is just with the kind of, uh, also, this is the part where I'm going to say pussy a few times. So I, for the Not the audience, first time on the podcast. Okay, good. All right, great. So um, there's a lot of pussy on this page, as you can see, um, uh, where, you know, if you look at the first page, it's almost exclusively pornography or hypersexualized websites. Um, number two, I always find completely fascinating, especially when I'm in the UK, because it's a band of white guys from the UK who call themselves the Black Girls. And I just need to know if anyone in the audience has ever heard of this band of white guys called the Black Girls. I don't understand it. It's confusing to me because they're so good at search engine optimization <laughs> and so terrible at music distribution. Um, but here they are. They're, they, they show up twice, in fact. They're not only the second hit, but down here toward the end, it Black Girls, their Facebook page. So they're winning. Um, they're doing, they're faring much better than actual Black Girls um, in terms of the way in which they're represented in search. And so this really prompted me to start writing more publicly about um, what does it mean when we think about the logics of search and how can we just have something that makes it very easy for, again, people who are marginalized by something like a search engine. But of course, this isn't exclusive. This process isn't exclusive just to search. I mean, now we see these similar phenomena happen in other related products, whether it's YouTube or whether it's Facebook and Twitter. We often find a totally just gross misrepresentation of people and communities. But I would thought, you know, um, focusing on kind of one dimension of technology search would help break apart what's actually happening in these systems. And, you know, one of the things that um, a lot of people think, again, is that, uh, you know, search engines simply reflect what's most popular. But of course, if you study search, one of the things that you know is that, of course, one dimension is hyperlinking and popularity, what people are clicking on. But that's not the total story, because you have to ask yourself about that type of logic of democracy where you have kind of a tyranny of the majority. And what would it mean for any group that's ever in a numerical minority to ever be able to have kind of a fair representation using that type of logic? Um, so that's something that I explore in the book. And then, of course, what does it mean when powerful industries can optimize and, and basically take control of keywords. Now, most of the women who are listening and that are here, we know that if you look at these kind of hypersexualized, pornified um, representations of black girls, that when you click into these sites, they're actually women over the age of 18 who are a variety of different kinds of um, workers in either the sex work or pornography um, industries. And they are anything but girls. They're not children. And so at a very kind of fundamental sexism 101, women get coded as girls. And we find this all the time. In fact, it's become so uh, something that women are so like inured to that when I tried to write a piece for Bitch Magazine, which is a feminist pop cultural magazine in the U.S., about this, and I said, you, know, you should let me write the story about how women uh, are pornified in search and what the implications of that are for, for women and feminism. They were like, everybody knows that. That's not a story. And I was like, we don't want to feminist critique it in the feminist magazine. So eventually I wore them down because I said, you know, why don't you all then just do a search on women's magazines and let me know if you see Bitch Magazine, this feminist magazine, oh, show up on the first page, no. which... 
don't we all know what it happened? Didn't, it didn't. It, it didn't. And that's how I got to write the story. Nice. Um, so I have a lot of great PR tactics for anyone in the room that wants to get their um, workout. I've got, I've got, yeah, I know, I know some strategies to get your stories sold. Um, but, you know, these same logics really of like, what, it, what does it mean that um, feminism and feminist content gets divorced from women's media? for example, so that all the usual suspects, Vogue, Good Housekeeping, which was kind of surprising. I didn't really know anyone was reading Good Housekeeping anymore. Online. Um, Apparently. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that these kind of traditional um, media outlets uh, really dominated the space for women's media, and there was not a lot of space for other kinds of um, points of view. Uh, and of course, this is really leads me to kind of the third huge dimension of what I try to uh, parse in this book, which is that the more powerful industries are able to control the narratives of people and communities. And so in the case of the porn industry, they've really been able to monopolize and control the images and ideas and messages about girls of color or women of color um, in many ways that large mainstream multinational media platforms are able to control uh, conversations about what is women's media. And so these are, so the book is just kind of rife with all kinds of examples of this nature. Now, um, ultimately, you know, people often ask, what's the kind of, what do you want to see? What, you know, what's the point of writing a book like this? And um, it was interesting, while I was reading this, there was a 2013 study that came out by Epstein and Robertson, where they argued that democracy was at risk because search engines um, could be manipulated so easily that it could really substantially shift voter preferences. And in their study, they basically uh, found that when they showed people negative stories about a political candidate, people said, I will not vote for that person if those negative stories were on the first page of search results. And if positive stories were there, they said, oh, then I'll vote for that person. And so one of the things that um, they concluded is that in very tight races, especially in local politics, those who can control the narrative on the first page of search results can really control elections. And this is quite consistent with other scholars like Matthew Hinman, who wrote a book many years ago called The Myth of Digital Democracy, where he argued that uh, large, well-moneyed political action committees can also kind of dominate the political electoral political scene because they can optimize content or make their content about candidates more visible than, say, um, those without a lot of resource. We just had a new political party launch uh, by a man who shall not be named, and they hadn't bought the... Was it Voldemort? (laughs) (laughs) He is from Britain. Um, um, And he hadn't bought... They hadn't bought the domain, and therefore it got hijacked. I'm just... uh, I'm I'm, I'm kind of thinking, like, are they they really able... uh, I feel like you shouldn't run for office if you don't know that you should buy your own domain. So so is it... So so do you think... uh, I I, I was kind of thinking, like, is that very believable? Do you think candidates are well switched on to that now? Oh, I mean, you know, I think that the... The uh, campaign of Barack Obama certainly ushered in a significant uh, shift in technical literacy that campaigns need to have. Um, but it is it, it is still surprising to me how people don't really understand how the internet works um, entirely. And of course, one of the dominant mechanisms by which messages are controlled is through domains and um, the property rights logic that really governs how domains work online. So that those with the most money, again, or people who are highly technical, are able to create more legitimacy 
in these spaces. And so one of the ways you see this, for example, Jessie Daniels wrote about this in her amazing book, Cyber Racism. She talked about how um, the domain martinluthercingjr.org was, uh, you know, bought and controlled by Stormfront, which is a white supremacist Nazi organization, um, global. Uh, it's the largest online white supremacist uh, organization. And um, for, you know, many years, the King estate was has never been able to recuperate martinluthercingjr.org. Um, so it's got the .org domain, which I think, you know, confers a kind of level of um, authority or credibility. So, you know, she talks about, again, what does it mean when you have the resources either by being kind of a, an early adopter and, of course, Stormfront was very early online organizing um, uh, racist communities and that the, the property rights scheme of ownership is actually what controls um, their ability to hold on to that domain and control the narrative of Dr. King. It's very interesting because you see every few years stories in mainstream media in the U.S. about teachers getting these papers turned in from their students where oh, they're no. like, Dr. King was a philanderer. He was a communist. He was a threat to the U.S. You know, way of life. Um, he was you know, anti-democratic. He was a terrible person on every level. And the teachers are always stunned. They don't understand where this is coming from. And it's because their students have just used a search engine, probably Google, and they've done a, a Google search and they've been led to a Stormfront website, oh which has occupied for many years the first slot on the first page. So these things have been written about, and I reference them in the book to kind of, again, help us understand what is at stake when we have these kinds of technical systems that can really control a narrative. And again, what does that mean for vulnerable communities? Um, you can see here, I have a slide of a story that was broken by, um, I think this is The Guardian, and um, this is Google's top news link for final, quote, final election results, and quote, goes to a fake news site with false numbers. So here you had the week following the 2016 U.S. presidential election. When you did a search on final um, election results, you go to a site. The first hit takes you to a disinformation site that reports out that Donald Trump has won the popular vote in the U.S. Now, I know we all have wonky politics. You're not going to talk about our political machinations, and we're not going to talk about <laughs> Brexit. But I will say that one of the things that you know is so disheartening is that we know, for example, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in the United States. But the way that Donald Trump won was that he won the Electoral College, which is ultimately how we um, elect presidents for now. So um, here we have here we have this kind of disinformation site dominating the first uh, slot, and one of the reasons why I find this so important is that you know we've had a lot of conversation over the last couple of years, in particular about social media, especially Facebook and Twitter, and the role they play in circulating disinformation, and people are starting to become much more sensitized. Uh, certainly the uh, Cambridge Analytica story really helps people understand the, the way in which these systems are, are organized. Um, but I find it interesting, and, and what I study is, you know, again, what does it mean when people find maybe questionable results in their social media feeds, and then they go and fact check it in a search engine? Oh, and so this is the challenge. Yeah, I know it sucks. <laughs> so, you know, this is one of the things that I find really um, important for us to study again is that 
we know that the public is highly reliant upon search engines. And when we look at like Pew research that comes out about search engine users, um, the majority of people uh, who use search engines believe that the things they find there are reliable, credible, trustworthy, um, and fair representations. And this is why we have to study these platforms, um, in my opinion, for the kinds of disinformation. Now, you know, when Google is asked, frankly, about the kinds of searches that produce these really, uh, you know, terrible results. For example, you often find white supremacist organizations or Nazi organizations will take over and try to optimize certain keywords. So here was a story that um, Gizmodo broke about the phrase Boasian anthropology. There's all these kind of interesting concepts that they're always linking up to each other. And so here's Boasian anthropology that gets completely co-opted by white nationalists, white supremacists. And when Sergey Brin is asked about it, why don't they do something to manage this type of content from coming to the top, he says in his own words, that would be bad technology practice. And that what people really want to know is that we have unbiased search results and that the search results are the search results. I just want to say that if I wrote books that were like, it is what it is because I said that's what it is. I probably wouldn't have a job. I'm just saying that would not be an acceptable answer. And yet here we have this kind of logic that um, somehow the companies are not responsible for the output of their systems. The systems just do what they do and they're independent of the programming or the um, uh, experimentation that's happening. And yet that's very much a kind of U.S. facing dialogue because when you look at Germany and France and other parts of the world, where anti-Semitism or hate speech is against the law, that type of content is moderated out and it is not visible. It's because it's illegal and the platforms face an incredible amount of fines. And we would not, again, really understand this. One of the reasons why I think in the U.S. we don't hear more about things like commercial content moderation, which my colleague at UCLA, Sarah Roberts, has got a new book called Behind the Screen that'll be out this June. Then she's one of the world's authorities. She did the first academic study of these commercial content moderators. Um, and one of the things that um, we know, for example, is that these hundreds of thousands of workers have been in the shadows. We haven't known about them for the last 30 years, that there was this level of kind of increasing intense hiring and management and training of people moderating content. And part of the reason that we haven't known about them is because this then flies in the face of the idea that the internet is a free speech zone and anything goes. What we know, in fact, is that it is not a free speech zone. Anything doesn't go. And that um, I've, I've heard one company um, that I won't name, um, but they've said that the issues of content for them are $2 billion risk uh, issue that they're facing in terms of liabilities. So we know if just for one company, they assess $2 billion worth of risk related to user-generated content moving through their platforms, then we know there has to be um, a lot more uh, to this than just uh, anything goes. I guess I'll, you know, uh, start to close here, but I'll just say, you know, one of the larger concerns, of course, of recent has been the way in which um, these technologies have been harnessed in use of radicalization of uh, our populations. In particular, we've been noticing the extreme right-wing radicalization. Uh, certainly, that's been a huge issue that on our minds in the U.S., of course, the way in which the weaponization 
of information and disinformation is being used uh, in these platforms. And, you know, part of the reason why platforms disavow their responsibility for the kind of content that moves through them is I think there's kind of two major issues. One, the volume of content that moves and circulates through these platforms is so great. Um, YouTube alone argued, uh, I heard them on Good Morning America, the uh, vice president over content for YouTube, about six months ago was on Good Morning America. And he said that um, they have just in YouTube alone about 400 hours per minute of user-generated content being uploaded. So 400 hours per minute, 24 by 7, never stops. And we're led to believe in the U.S., again, I think we're increasingly seeing this in the U.K. and the E.U. around, um, I don't know if that's impolitic, to separate the UK and the EU, yes. So I'm just trying to be thoughtful <laughs> well, and acknowledge it, I that I don't, I'm not sure what the <laughs> right thing is to say. Um, but we, we, you know, we're led to believe that uh, AI is going to solve this. Silicon Valley tech leaders say, well, we're going to throw more AI at these problems and we're going to you know, uh, be able to crack down on um, these processes. But those of us who understand anything about AI know that, for example, AI is still trying to figure out is this table a table? Do you know? Is this table like that table? I mean, it's very crude. Cat or not cat? Is it a cat? <laughs> I'm not sure. So we know that um, AI is not it. And the AI, in fact, as I uh, love to hear Sarah Roberts say, um, you know, your AI is a human being who's adjudicating and making these decisions and these choices. And so this, uh, of course, dramatically changes the, the framing of these companies as, as publishers or not. And this, again, becomes a really big issue. And, of course, most of the platforms don't want to be seen as publishers because then they're responsible for the content that moves through. And this, uh, this is one of the um, major issues. So I guess I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll just close and say, you know, there's a short excerpt of the book um, at Wired.com. And one of the th- kind of closing arguments that I try to make in the book is that, um, you know, these issues of social inequality, particularly whether it's that people are being misrepresented in search engines and we can't quite get a handle on that, or that the wholesale kind of privatization of knowledge is being, again, constantly outsourced to search engines and other kinds of uh, tech platforms is really, I think, we're going to see kind of a crisis point. Um, Certainly, we have experienced massive divestment from public education, massive divestment from higher education, uh, almost an obliteration of public interest media or public media organizations. All of the counterweights that one might need in a democratic society to manage, to educate, to help make sense of the way disinformation works and flourishes in privatized platforms. Um, Many of those institutions are being um, eviscerated before our very eyes. And so, you know, I kind of try to help contextualize, you know, what does it mean that we we think that, um, you know, social inequality is going to be solved by an app? I mean, how ludicrous on on so many levels. In fact, I have this girlfriend, she's like in her 20s, her late 20s. And after the UK House of Commons study came out last spring that says by 2030, the top 1% will own two thirds of the world's wealth. Um, I said to her, the study came out, I was super bummed. And I said, you know, what do they think? They, we're just going to like sit around and watch videos of other people eating 
And she was like, girl, I do that. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to know that that's what you do. She's like, I totally do that. I, lo- I love to like watch videos of people eating fancy things. And I was like, this is not it. So um, I was like, I'm not going to let that represent millennials because I am a true Gen X hater of all other generations. Um, but I will say that, you know, the kind of acculturation that is happening to us too is part of what I think I try to take up in the book. This idea that we think somehow the tech is going to save us. I should have worn my t-shirt that says tech won't save us, join a union. I have that t-shirt. It's a great shirt. I should have worn it. I can't see that on a podcast. You really can't see it, so I have to save it for a, a photo. Don't tell them what my t-shirt says. Okay. <laughs> She's got stripes on. Um, <clears throat> oh, no. So, Such a it's a good. Um, so, you know, I think we have to think about, you know, our orientation. I mean, the last thing I'll say is, you know, something I try to stress to my students is that after they're, they've been raised on, you know, just Googling it since they were in, you know, elementary school, uh, primary school. And they've come to believe, many of my students, that all knowledge can be known in 0.03 seconds. Hmm. And, you know, it takes a lot of work to untrain people from thinking that all the world's answers are just a few clicks away. I mean, in many ways, we, what would we need a university for? What would we need, you know, books and literature and all of the things for? And so I think we have to think about what our expectations are as well as we go forward into in the realm of knowledge. And of course, I come out of the field of library and information science. That's where my training is. So um, I feel like that's like the ultimate nerd degree, <laughs> and I'm super proud of it. And you know, there when we think about access to knowledge and knowledge for the future, that we are putting so much stock in private corporations to manage. Uh, knowledge, and that those private companies are advertising platforms, and the thought of relinquishing kind of you know our our ways of knowing to advertising platforms to me is something that uh, we should be incredibly concerned about, and I try to raise up some visibility for that. You know, we have more data and technology than ever, and more social, political, and economic inequality and injustice to go with it. And I think these are the tensions that I'm interested in sussing out with you um, tonight. And uh, thanks for letting me share a little bit about the book. Wonderful, wonderful. Right. right, let's... So many different things I want to talk about, and actually, She's got notes we should. All well, over I've just scribbled loads of things down. Afraid. I've got no idea what I'm it afraid. says. Um, and actually, I think we should come on to some slightly more positive things uh, towards the end. But I wanted to know um, if you could give us a bit more um, of, a, of, a, of a kind of detailed analysis of um, if people actually know about this at all, and a lot of people don't. It's quite easy for people to believe that code is neutral. You know, programming computers is neutral, um, and um, you know things like software and uh, uh, neutral, and uh, and maths can't discriminate, things like that. Can you just give us a bit more of an idea of, you know, is it purposeful? Is it people? What, you know, what's really going on that makes those search results happen as they are? You know, is it culture? Is it money? Okay, so there are a lot of things at play here. I mean, f- obviously, we know that the dominant discourse in engineering schools is that, and I, wor- I worked at the University of Illinois, which is a top five engineering school in the U.S. And um, there's definitely a huge... Uh, culture in the training of computer scientists and engineers, even physicists, people who go to work in um, Silicon corridors, that their work is objective and neutral. 
and that the work of people like me in humanities or social sciences is just purely subjective um, and interpretive. And so, of course, we have work to do in shifting the culture in um, these kinds of programs. And um, it's been interesting. I mean, when I was at the U of I years ago, there was one ethics course. It was taught by an adjunct, a woman, computer science adjunct. I just let you think about what that means. Um, and Tell us what an adjunct is, sorry? An, oh, an adjunct is like a contingent worker, like a temporary a temp. Okay. A temp. And, um, uh, and so now you're starting to see provosts and uh, deans of engineering schools. Uh, for example, we just had Stanford just announced a couple of weeks ago this large human-centered uh, AI initiative um, and that with an audacious goal of trying to raise $1 billion, acknowledging that there must be some ethical or human social must dimensions. <laughs> um, MIT also uh, announced an ethics and AI initiative, also with an audacious $1 billion goal. Now, I find it incredibly interesting because now these are starting to become more mainstream conversations after a decade or more of women of color scholars, um, quite frankly, and gay um, scholars, people who have been in the crosshairs of studying these and raising the, the questions about uh, how these technologies affect their communities. After, you know, many years of our doing this work, now these conversations are starting to become more mainstream. They're certainly housed in these conversations or these keywords like ethics um, or fairness, or accountability, transparency. These are the words that get used. The words like oppression don't get used or maybe get crossed through. Again, I think it's interesting that the very epicenters of where the problems have originated out of some of these large uh, university R&D spaces, the same places, the same corridors that were determined to have us believe that technology was neutral and objective and purely math are now um, allegedly trying to take the lead in these conversations about the social, and political, and ethical dimensions. And one of the ways that they're doing that is by, again, centering the same voices and the same people who just last year denied that. So, I mean, one has to ask, mm -hmm. is there a profit imperative or is there some, <laughs> some other reason why one would um, engage in these conversations? And I think part of it is damage control. Um, the industry is very concerned about the the way that journalists and scholars have been um, bringing to light all of these kind of digital failures. And, um, you know, in, in that way, like I mentioned earlier, $2 billion worth of risk just for one company alone. They know they've got to get a handle on some of these issues. Um, I think the question in the future will be not whether these technologies are biased um, or uh, subjective, but who will get to control the narrative about that and um, shrink the limits of those conversations. And those are the kinds of things that I'm certainly worried about. Um, I think we're a little bit, in most quarters, we're past the, the idea of can technology be biased, um, at least among researchers. Uh, I think, and in industry, there's definitely full, full acknowledgement of that. The question, though, uh, about defining that, and I think, again, I resist the, using these words like bias, is because they neuter, they, they take out the potency of being able to name the problems, right? If you say, well, everybody's biased, then there's no problem. It's everybody's same problem, except that it's not the same. Because if you're targeted for, let's say, ethnic cleansing or genocide, 
by an algorithm, that's actually not the same kind of bias as conservative news stories don't come to the top, which is an allegation that has happened in the U.S. See, so it's actually different. And power is the main criteria by which we have to understand what's happening. And this is why I think more powerful words like um, oppression or liberation or civil rights or human rights should be in these conversations about the so-called neutrality mm. or not. Yeah, and it's funny because you talk about uh, how, how we all thought about Google perhaps at the beginning, how scholars thought about Google when Google was taking all of the digital knowledge online. Um, do you think there's a point that we could get to where um, uh, search is good or is search one of those things that perhaps can never be good? Is there a social network that doesn't um, act in the way that you know some of our favorite social networks kind of seem to want us to do? Um, is that the goal or actually do we have to, uh, potentially do we say actually last 20 years, right off? Okay, <laughs> you know, there are ways that we can reframe and think about the choices that we're making uh, a- around our engagements. Certainly, I think there are a lot of us who think about public interest technologies. I mean, the last, in the conclusion of the book, I argue for non-commercial public interest search that you you know what we need is not one monopoly leader we need many many ways of accessing knowledge you know we have this other community of um, uh, knowledge experts called librarians for example and um, you know those are that's also libraries are also another technology okay that uh, predates the internet and so we could think about the assets and the national treasures, the international treasures of knowledge that we already have, certainly universities, public uh, libraries, academic, um, and deep subject matter experts um, who are really important to helping us uh, glean knowledge that can improve science, improve the arts, humanities, all of the kinds of things that uh, can improve our quality of life. So I think that, um, you know, it's not a necessarily an all or none. I think uh, if we had more search engines, quite frankly, now Yahoo probably like wants to sponsor me for saying something like this. Like if we had more search <laughs> oh, engines God rather than just, God, I know. <laughs> but, you know, it's like then people also might say, well, wow, it's interesting because when I use this, I get this. And when I use this one, I get something different. Mm. And the subjectivity of these systems would be more visible if we had more. Mm. So rather than one of authoritative source that is an advertising platform. Mm. Um, We need public interest alternatives that are not generated, you know, that could be supported by tax dollars the way our our roads and infrastructure is. I mean, why couldn't we have knowledge infrastructures that are supported by the public the way we have transportation um, and other types of infrastructure? Uh, That's a very legitimate um, call. And uh, and so I think that the, those are the some of the ways that we can um, approach thinking about you know the future. I don't think it's. I mean, I'm super hopeful about the future. I don't. I think that we're going to start to see. In fact, the. Um, I don't know what's the rag. What's the rag newspaper or something that you have here? It, it's the Inquirer for us in the United States. Is there like um, a, it's the one that you know is just like full of nonsense? Oh, we have you know, many of them close. Okay. All right, so, you know, it's it, many people I think are starting to experience their platforms as like just like devolving, you know, to like the just not helpful. So I think this is one of the things the platforms are also going to have to deal with is with the volume of nonsense that goes up, the inability peak to nonsense. differentiate. Yes, we're like at peak nonsense. Um, you know, how then do you start to differentiate and do some things. And I think the companies are also um, interested, in fact, in trying to 
stay valuable and relevant and not just kind of bottom out. Um, so, you know, these are complex issues that I think industry can work on, but I think we can also work on in the public sphere too. I've just written so many things and I've got so many notes now, I don't even know where to start. I went to a, a library data hackathon uh, a few weeks ago. Um, so I would love if there were any librarians listening to give a big shout out to our librarians because um, our librarians are no longer kind of uh, architects of information. Um, because Google can do that. Um, we have an incredible problem where they're the front line of um, the public sector. And so people present at libraries who are unwell, uh, who can't access uh, health services, um, who are, um, you know, have taken drugs, and they're being trained in all sorts of things that um, uh, librarians are not necessarily uh, there to do. And it's a really, um, I, I hadn't quite grasped the the challenge, and, and you know, you would perhaps call it austerity uh, politics here. Um, you know, if you can't turn up at a hospital, if you can't turn up at your doctor's surgery, where do you turn up? Well, people turn up at, do- at, at, at librarian services. Um, so that was a bit of a strange kind of imagining of 21st century librarianship, which I don't think people were necessarily um, kind of thinking. Um, I Also, the road builders thing. Um, I, um, uh, the analogy, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, Marshall McLuhan, the medium and the message. He talked about um, uh, whether people, um, uh, whether the uh, whether motor car is a medium. Uh, and what that means. Uh, and an analogy I did, uh, I was talk- talking to somebody about was about um, uh, do we blame road builders for car crashes? Uh, no, we don't, by and large. Uh, do we blame um, um, uh, car manufacturers for, for car crashes? No. But we do have unless unless it's any of those companies that have done terrible things over, over many, many years. But we do have a system of licensing that has evolved over many years. We do have, a, you know, a kind of international understanding of what road safety is and insurance and all those kind of things. Um, and we started driving about 100 years ago. Um, can you imagine a kind of... Uh, it, we're actually in quite nascent stages of what we, you know, know is our information society... Called, you know, so- software society or whatever. Um, can can you imagine a a time perhaps where we're regulated in that kind of way, uh, and actually maybe some some p- pros and cons of that kind of stuff? Well, sure, I definitely see that. I mean, I think that uh, there are other scholars. I think about the there's a great kind of subset of communication and technology studies, the kind of social construction of technology theorists, um, Langdon Winner, Arnold Pacey. Um, LinkedIn Winner in particular talked about um, that even if we were to take something like transportation systems, right, and infrastructure, and think of them as kind of explicitly apolitical or neutral, um, he gives great examples of how different technologies actually reflect certain kinds of politics. So I can say in the U.S., you know, we had a heavy investment in car culture, in uh, automotives, um, in our um, roads, our highway uh, transportation system. Um, and now, you know, of course, we're paying for that in global warming, the end, full stop. So, you know, it, that wasn't without consequences. Uh, and that wasn't strictly like a, a matter of just um, codes that govern the individual experience of driving. So what happens is people have to go to work and so they use what's available, What's available if they live in a car culture is the car. Nice. Okay. If they have, if if a mass public transit is available, they'll use that. Ask any New Yorker who leaves and moves to California, mm-hmm. who's horrified that they have to drive everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know we have to think about these kind of infrastructural issues 
think, you know, thinking through the complexity of the long-term ramifications, for sure. Um, the longer-term ramifications of what we've built right now are things that, like um, Shoshana um, Zuboff in her new book, uh, Surveillance Capitalism, writes about, where we will be in these digital enclosures that we cannot see our way out of, and our every move is so tracked, so hyper-tracked, that what's presented to us is really a construction of consumer marketing, right, and controlling our behavior or influencing our behavior. So that's one, you know... Um, uh, imaginary of what's ha- of what could happen, um, and I do agree that we're in a nascent moment where we could call back uh, or reframe some of the choices that have been made. And I'll and I'll give you this example from the tobacco industry. One of the things I'm trying to start organizing this summer uh, is a corollary to the Truth Initiative or the Truth Campaign that came about in response to the tobacco industry. So let me tell you a bit about that. You know. Um, most everyone here is not old enough to know this, but you know, in the 1950s and the 1960s, we would get a magazine advertisements um, that four out of five doctors recommend Marlboro cigarettes. You might go in for surgery, and the surgeons like got a cigarette hanging from his mouth. Okay, this was very common during the rise of big tobacco. That smoking was everywhere. It was seen as a matter of individual choice, and then we had research that showed that it was actually impacting non-smokers through something we call a secondhand smoke, and that there was a public health crisis connected to smoking. So one of the things that happened is there was a huge uh, lawsuit against big tobacco, and the tobacco's in industry had to invest billions of dollars, firewall protected, into research, consumer knowledge, commercials, all kinds of radio ads, so much legislation to help people understand the implications of tobacco. Of course, you still have an individual choice if you want to smoke. But if you don't want to be caught up in the system of what tobacco can do to your life, you also should be able to have certain types of choices. And then we enacted all kinds of public policy, like you can't smoke in government buildings, and then you couldn't smoke in bars, and now you have to smoke like all these different places. So these are the kinds of things that I can imagine right now with what we know about what surveillance is doing in these systems, what disinformation is doing to democracy. There's no reason why we won't see some type of reimagining of what this sector is and a a whole uh, host of regulations that will come down upon it. It's inevitable. There's no way. Um, You know, if you look at other industries, I think about pharmaceuticals, for for example. We would never let three guys go into a strip mall and make up um, some drugs and then roll it out at Boots Pharmacy on the weekend. Mm -hmm. It just would not happen. I mean, we have so much oversight Mm -hmm. over drugs, for example. Um, and yet we had in Florida, we had three guys go into a strip mall and make the um, recidivism predictive software um, compass uh, that was used and sold to the state of Florida that we found that, it, in fact, investigative journalists, um, Julia Ingwin, Jeff Larson and their teams found for ProPublica that that software was predicting um, black people were more twice as likely to commit crimes, even though that was not true. Right, and so they were being over-incarcerated at a rate um, twice that of their white counterparts. And there was no oversight. It was three guys in a strip mall who made some software and sold it. 
So these are the kinds of things that we're talking life or death consequences, life in prison or not, a decade in prison or not, other kinds of predictive technologies that are being made with so little oversight that can have such severe social consequences. I think it's inevitable that we're going to have a sea change at some point. Who do we have to make the case to? You were saying we, you were saying, you know, things yeah. change. Is it, is it the UN for internet? Um, is it, you know, is it, is it individuals, um, in, individual internet users? Are we all software citizens? You know, how, yeah, who's, yeah. whose door have we got to knock on? I mean, I think we've got to be educated ourselves and we've got to demand a certain level of uh, literacy and, and political recognition, you know, in all of the kind of large systems that are governing over, whether it's the EU, the United States, just last week, we saw in the UK, there was new legislation introduced around um, algorithms and discrimination, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Um, uh, we saw uh, three policymakers in the US just a few days ago also introduce like anti-discrimination and algorithm kind of legislation. So, you know, that's not going to be enough. I mean, we're going to have to, like all uh, civil and human rights legislation, um, most times it's not perfect. It has to be, we have to be vigilant um, around it, but at least I think we have an opening for legitimation of even the the, the concerns, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that public policy does is it legitimates a set of concerns in a way that previously were not legitimized. Right. You can tell us your name if you want. You can shout out what you would like to say, please. And we'll... Hi, I'm Yvette. Um My question is um, that what characterizes sufficiently advanced algorithms is the fact that humans can't comprehend them. So, do you think it's actually possible to like? Do you think it's realistic to think that we can actually regulate them? Is it realistic to think that we can regulate algorithms, given that they are often too uh, difficult for us, models, us, uh, us to comprehend? I think that the certainly the kind of um, deep machine learning based algorithms that are being developed right now, I mean, the whole point of those is exactly what you're saying, which is um, so much data is being um, analyzed and new patterns being detected from that data that give us different kinds of outputs or ideas or um, assessments um, that the human brain could not compute on its own. And for sure, to me, this is the place where we are more likely to see um, human and civil rights violations um, come about because one of the things that we can't do with a lot of algorithms like search, we can't study search because we can't see the algorithms, but what we can see is the output of those algorithms. So one of the things that happens in those of us who study um, kind of the output of systems is once harm has already been enacted then we're able to document that, talk about that, and create pressure around that. Um, hi, Miranda. Um, I've got two questions, but you can just pick one. Okay. <laughs> um, so firstly, I wanted to go back to um, that T-shirt that you're not wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, tech won't save us, join a union. And I was wondering if you could quickly talk about the role of labor organizing in taking on oppressive power structures in the tech industry. So, for example, the role of... Um, Tech workers were unionized, dismantling um, Google's bullshit transphobic AI ethics board yes. in the space of a week, or in the UK, amazing independent unions, UBW and IWGB, um, led by micro women um, Get it. who represent Deliveroo and Uber drivers yes. taking on massive yep. tech firms. That is a good question. So awesome. We'll take that. Can we just use that one? The, yeah. um, the I know the other one was of, awesome too. The role of, la- of labor unions yes. in um, organizing to dismantle all of this terrible stuff. Incredibly important. There is no question that organizing labor is, is very important, um, particularly because 
the way in which the, the dominant discourses about the tech sector are really the white collar professional jobs and people don't see the whole supply chain of labor that's involved, whether you go you know, to the extraction of minerals in the Congo, right, um, in China, or all the way through the kind of service dimensions of the work, the, the piece work in hardware, for example. I mean, we really fetishize the elite software engineers and as if that's tech. Um, so, of course, we have to be doing that. And it's, again, so interesting to me that it has been, just like in academia, when we talk about these critical takes on the sector, it's been women, it's been LGBTQ and trans um, communities who have been the workers in these communities that are organizing. There is a question here. Hi. Hi. Um. I have a question about how you think the crew works structurally. Um, so you spoke about um, non-profit search engines. Um, I think you said competing with other kinds of search engines, commercial ones. It's a number of number of search engines Exist, that, uh, existing. So you think that it's so you think it's a competitive rather than a kind of monopolistic market. No, I'm not saying that we just need market logics that are different, that are about introducing a nonprofit search engine into the same market logics of, of kind of neoliberal um, capitalism, because that's not going to do anything. So it would take obviously much more than just a non-commercial search engine to address these broader, also it might take a different country. I don't know. We would have, there are people though, I would say, you know, the models that we're existing with right now are not sustainable. So I don't know. I mean, you're asking me, like, well, like, how do I solve global racialized capitalism? And it's, man, you know what I mean? I don't actually have the answer yet. I mean, but I, and search, quite honestly, is not really the point to me. I mean, the book for me is really not about we need better search engines. The book is about, look what happens when you consolidate power over information over people who are already oppressed and, and then use these market logics or majority rules logics or technical logics to maintain power over them. And how can one disrupt that and speak back to that? It's really the book is like a meta about other concerns. Are there any final questions? I don't want to stop anybody if anybody know yet. Yeah. One more, but final yeah, question, kind of good question. Yeah, in kind of reference to what you just saying about consolidation of power, like how much, I, don't, I want you to elaborate, like how much it differs from the old model of knowledge. Because like the kind of, the thing about the internet when it came up was like the democratization of yeah. knowledge. And obviously we know that that's false because that's it's the case, it's, that's, not, that's, that's right. not what's happening. But it's not like back then was any better anyway. So like what is, what are we shifting towards and how do we... Is this different? To yeah, I love it. I mean, of course, you know, the field of librarianship is like a history of white supremacy to, you know, and patriarchy. There's no question. I mean, I teach courses about that. The issue, though, it, before is that we knew that it was that and we could organize and we could do something in response to, for example, who gets to control the making of knowledge? How is knowledge disseminated in our society? What are other epistemologies? What are other ways of knowing? We could actually engage on those terms with a, a type of uh, transparency about what's happening in the way that I think with some of the tech, the ways that technologies um, makes those processes opaque 
and shrouds them in words like democracy and technology and just math, right, that makes it then very difficult to speak to the types of subjectivities that are happening in these processes. Those are the kinds of things that I'm trying to give us, like, words and arguments to parse so that um, we can actually know how to intervene or think about that we should intervene in ways that I think before, you know, um, we knew we needed to intervene and we have been intervening. We continue to. It's a great question. So I am going to... I love everyone in this room. Leave it there. Oh, it there. well, so that's good. a way to get the audience on board, There's a lot of board, faces, eh? a lot of smiles. Oh. Just to appreciate it. Even oh. if you didn't like what I was saying, you didn't... You just... No, you were no, like, no, thank you. <laughs> how, is, how is this all being received? You must see more. You're over in the US. Do these people take it on board? Are they, are they, are they scared? Is there, is there... Do you think that they... Some of them are able to change? Is it a workforce thing? Uh, do they, they want to hire you as their head of something so that you can come in and just... Uh, the they do not. <laughs> for sure, I can answer that with yeah. a, a definitive no. Look, you know, one of the things I know is that some of the papers that I write that are online, I can see, like, hundreds and hundreds of downloads to Mountain View. <laughs> oh, do you know what I'm saying? So, like, I know... So, I can... I know, I'm like, I can see that. Um, so... So I think there are people reading it. Sometimes I talk to like ex-Googlers and they're like, I'm under an NDA, so I can't say anything to you. But (laughs) and then they look at me and they like point and they're like, but I'm not saying that you're wrong. But I'm not saying anything because I'm not trying to get killed or whatever happens. I think it's like I think an NDA with Google is like a an NDA with Oprah. Like don't cross it. You know what I mean? Um, so there are other companies that want to have conversations and invite me to come and talk, and I speak with them. And they're I think are earnestly trying to figure some of these things out. One of the problems is these companies are very large, so you know there are people of conscience who work in these companies, and many of them stay and work because they say it would be so much worse if they weren't there. And I think you know they're probably right, and so they they um, they're very open to um, not just me, but lots of people who are talking and levying critiques right now. Um, or a part of the tech lash, if you will. Um, And they're trying to figure out what to do with some of this and can they act upon it. And I know, you know, I used to work in corporate America for 15 years before I was an academic. I was one of these people who really believed, like, if you work in a company that's big, a big Fortune 100 company, you can affect change. And that was the way I came out of undergraduate. And I that's what I believed. And um, I did go to graduate school to atone for some of those sins. Um, But I do feel like, you know, good people are everywhere. In, you know, and they're trying to take care of their families and they're trying to, you know, make a way in, in life. Um, so, you know, I don't demonize people who work in the Valley. I really try hard not to do that. So it just leaves uh, for me to say thank you so much for um, such an interesting conversation. Massive thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. That's it for the weekly economics podcast this week. A big shout out to the team at the New Economics Foundation who made this event happen. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, why not leave us a rating or a review in your podcast app? Thanks so much for listening. Listening.